how can we change? How can we, I live, how can you live a better life, uh, a life that matters, a life that counts for something, a life of significance? Um, you ever asked a question like that? Maybe not in those words, but something of that order, at least had a conversation, was kind of percolating over those things. Um, a lot of books, whole bookstores, Amazon, right? Like the big sellers are dominated with themes along those lines. How can I do this? How can I live a significant life? How can I change? Um, how can I change to live a significant life? Uh, podcasts, innumerable podcasts are uh, governed, driven along those lines. YouTube is just filled with, with uh, I mean, the TED Talk thing alone has, has a lot to do, driven by, by all of, of that. And, and, and a lot of that can be helpful, uh, but if you've had any experience delving into the books or the podcasts or the videos or, or whatever, you, you also know that oftentimes their effect and their helpfulness can be rather limited. Limited because of, of the orientation the way they're coming at the question, the way they're coming at, at, at the problem, oftentimes far too mechanical, uh, oftentimes far too moralistic, oftentimes far too mystical, or put another way, driven by you just need a better technique, or you, uh, you just need to work a little harder, you know, so do it the right way or go a little further, one or the other, or tap into an unknown hidden power of, of, of some kind. Um, and, and again, there are a lot of helpful things in many ways that can be you know, gleaned from, from you know, this, this kind of thing. But um, there is a problem. And the problem is not in the desire. The problem is not in the desire to live a significant life. The problem is not in the desire to be changed. The problem is not to, to, to have a life of significance and meaning and, and such and, and experience some inward something because you know there's something wrong with you. That's, the problem is not the desire for the change and the transformation. The problem is oftentimes the path that we walk on towards that. Our text this morning gets at this in a lot of ways. Uh, Jesus speaks to our desire and our need for transformation and change. He really does uh, here in this, this passage. So John 15 is where we're going. If you have a Bible, encourage you to turn there now. It's going to be, is already on the screen behind me. Uh, John, that's the fourth of the four Gospels. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. If you hit Acts, gone too far. John, John 15, this is the last in our series. We've been doing this over the last several months, off and on. The last in our series, looking at the uh, Jesus' I am statements as recorded for us in the Gospel of John. And this is the last in, of the ones that we find uh, there in John's Gospel. And here uh, he, he says something, as he has said in every one of these cases, something rather striking and so vital for us to hear. John 15, verses 1 through 17. Hear now God's word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, 
you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Well, let's pray together here for a moment, if we may. Lord Jesus, you are the vine and we are the branches. In you we find life. In you we find, find flourishing. And only in you. It's all very clear. You, you couldn't have said it any more clearly. We really could almost just dismiss at this point. Um, we thank you we have some time to meditate upon this passage here, and we ask that indeed you would help us, you would guide us, you would teach us, you would cause these words, whether we're hearing them for the first or the umpteenth time, you would cause these words to go deep within us, uh, that we would not be able to look at a vine ever again the same way, because you just keep bringing to our minds what you said here, as recorded in John 15. We pray in your name. Amen. So what's it take to be the king of England? What's it take to be the king of England? Uh, Charles III is finding out, right? Uh, now, he, um, even in terms of names, even in terms of, well, not names, but titles, titles, right? He has for a long time, decades, been known as his royal highness, the Prince of Wales, no longer, that is not now his title. He is now His Majesty, the King of England. What on earth does it take to be the King of England? Well, it's not as though he wasn't prepared for the job. His whole life, his whole life has been driven, governed, if you will, for this, to be prepared, to take on this role, to have the royal prerogative, you know, operating according to the advice and counsel of the prime minister. Um, that's kind of a complicated arrangement. I won't get into that. I hardly understand it, actually. Um, but his whole life has really been governed, set for, for this time, this season, taking on the, the crown or having it put upon him, I guess. And, and no few just in the last few weeks with the passing of his mother, Queen Elizabeth, 
have noted the critical role that she has played all this time in preparing him for this role because she knew that he needed to know what it meant to be the king of England. It's a critical question that you, for which you need an accurate answer. What's it take to be the king if you're going to be the king? Okay, here's another critical question for which we need an accurate answer. What does it mean to be a Christian? Now you say, duh. No, but seriously, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, there are a lot of different ways to get at the answer to that question, biblical answers, I would add. But in our text this morning, Jesus answers that question for us in a way that may surprise you. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to come into the vine. That's the John 15 answer, okay, to that question. What does it mean to be a Christian? To come into the vine. After all, what does he say? Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And then, of course, he, he goes on from there. Now, those of you who have been a part of this series at all, uh, through these I am statements in John's gospel, you've probably, probably got a pretty good idea of where I'm about to go right now. In order to rightly understand these I am statements, you've got to read in certain ways. You've got to be able to read back and read broad, okay? So reading back, we have to go back into the Old Testament. So understanding as Jesus' hearers, as these words are landing upon them, they have a historical context under which they're, they're, they're experiencing this teaching, okay? So that means they will be familiar with such passages as was read earlier from Isaiah 5 where Israel is described as a vine, a vine that the vine dresser, this being the Lord himself, planted, tended, watched over, protected, looked for a yield, looked for a harvest, didn't see it, and cleaned it up, like completely, in judgment. Uh, that would be in your ears. You know, that's part of what it would have meant to hear that. So that would be part of reading back. Reading broad? Reading broad is to take into account all of John's gospel, what's come before and even what's come after, or what's coming after as you keep moving through the, the gospel. Now, I'm not going to go into specifics right now, but time and again, actually in several occasions even in this series, we have seen how Jesus is in himself life. In the wisdom of his teaching, we see life. In the power of his miracles, we see life. In the depth, can I just put it this way? The depth of his character, in the wonder of his person, we see how Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is life in and of himself. Let me just add one more B, if I may. Uh, not just the reading back and reading broad. I got a new one for you. Just, just a special new edition added just here. See, it's good you showed up. <laughs> you got a bonus. Um, reading beside. What I mean by that is taking into account not just, the, not just the historical context, but the cultural context. So this is an agrarian culture. So when Jesus starts talking about agricultural metaphors, a vine, and the absolute necessity of the branches of a vine in order to be fruitful, staying connected to that vine, his hearers know exactly what he's talking about. Well, you get grapes, you think they come from Publix. The produce stand, yeah, they come from a bag with little holes in them, right? But think of those of you who cut 
Christmas trees, not the artificial ones, but, you know, Christmas time, if you can project to December, you cut the tree down, what have you just done? You're not decorating your house, you're killing a tree. I, it's okay. That's, if you want, I'm not, I'm not anti, never mind, cut that from the recording. Um, anyway, so reading back, reading broad, reading beside, Jesus' hearers are, they, they get this. They get this in a way, in, in a deeper way than we do. They wouldn't have needed all this explanation, for instance, you know, in order to set the, stone, set the stage for, for John 15. The, the main point, the main idea of what we're seeing here is this. What Jesus is driving at, trying to get his hearers then and now to, to reckon with is he calls us to a fruitful life. He calls his followers, he calls his peoples, he calls his disciples then and now to a fruitful life, a life that is connected to him. A life that is connected to him. Now, what does that mean for us? How is that significant? How do we understand that? We're going to break this down in three ways. It's the three points in the outline in the bulletin, if you've got that. First is we're going to look at the work of the vine dresser. Then we're going to look at the life of the vine. And then we're going to look at the fruit of the branch. So those three components of this teaching, okay? The work of the vine dresser the life of the vine, and the fruit of the branch. So let's look at these three things in turn. So first, the work of the vine dresser. Put it another way. Here's a question. What does the vine dresser have in mind? What are his priorities for the vineyard and the branches that are connected to this vine? Okay, what does he have in mind? Well, verses 1 through 3 uh, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Skipping down to verse 6. Uh, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Okay, uh, there are two branches being described here, okay? And they're very different. One is uh, described as being removed or taken away or cut off, okay? And the image here is, just think, think agrarian culture, think about a vineyard and just... Gardening 101, what you have here is a lifeless, worthless, dead branch that's hanging on to the vine that is dead and likely diseased and is going to compromise, you know, think in terms of agrarian life and vineyards and, and, and just gardening, uh, likely going to compromise the health of the whole vine if the vine dresser doesn't do something. Okay? Now, don't get confused here. Jesus is not referring here. Don't, don't read too much into this image. He's not referring here to a true believer, a true Christian, a true disciple who gets lost and falls away and then is thrown into the fire. That's not his point. That's not what he's driving after here. What he's talking about here is someone who professes with their lips but it's not true, not really true. It's not, you know, it's, they, they, it's not a grappling, it's not a real embracing of the, of the grace of Christ. So it's a professing believer 
who's just kind of there, that's not bearing any fruit. Because, of course, they're not connected to the vine. Um, that one is removed. That's the branch that's removed, that's cast away, thrown away. There's another branch. This one is doing what it's supposed to. This one's fruitful. This one's bearing life. What happens to it? It experiences what's referred to as a pruning. Uh, it gets the attention, whether it wants it or not, it gets the attention of the vine dresser. Now, I have to admit, I've never watched this, but I've read a fair bit about it over the last couple of weeks. And according to experts, when the vine dresser is done with a fruitful vine and the pruning shear or knife, they've pretty well wounded and decimated that vine. It looks really ugly, the branch. It looks really, really ugly. It looks like they tried to kill it. But the point is not to kill it. The point is actually to cause it to draw all the more of its life from the vine. That's the reason the vine dresser has moved towards it with that cutting knife, that it would find its life all the more in the vine and therein mature and grow and be all the more fruitful. So the meaning here of the image is, well, this is the Christian life. I don't know if anyone ever told you this. I'm sorry if they didn't, but this is in many ways a description of the Christian life. Rough handling, rough handling by the one who loves you for the sake of fruit, for the sake of your maturing, for the sake of your growth, rough handling. If I can just put it this way, love comes at you with a knife. That's oftentimes the way it is, not just with a hug, that could be too, but sometimes love comes at us with a pruning knife. For the sake of fruitfulness, that's the work of the vine dresser. C.S. Lewis, his classic work, Mere Christianity, speaks to this very point. He says, we must not be surprised if we're in for a rough time. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, he often feels that it would be natural if things went fairly smoothly. Right? Isn't that, isn't that what you signed up for? Of course it is. What troubles that will come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptations, you begin to get disappointed. Sorry, when troubles come. Why is this happening now? Didn't I already give myself to God? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Now, why is this important? Again, love sometimes takes the shape of, the form of, him coming towards us with the knife. So as you think about loss, loss of a role, loss of a relationship, 
loss of a dream, loss of a plan, loss of a person. You know where I'm, I know where my heart goes. Okay, I won't speak for you. Yeah, I will. We know where our heart goes. We immediately assume something along these lines. This must mean we lack the attention and affection of God. And that's why he's done this. I don't have his attention. I don't have his affection. And that's why he's done this. That's why he's allowed this. Child of God. Friend, right? The language used here. Friend of Jesus. Do you know it could well be, in fact, it is just the opposite. It's because you have his attention. It's because you're the object of his affection. It's precisely the opposite. It's precisely the opposite. The fruitful life, the means towards a fruitful life is the work of the vine dresser. And that's a vital part of it. But there's another part. And that takes us to the second point, the life of the vine. Not just the work of the vine dresser, but the life of the vine. So the first question was, what does he have in mind? Here's another question. How does fruitfulness come? How does fruitfulness come? Well, we see that here again, verses 4 through 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Skipping down to verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. So clearly we see here, uh, at least these two things in this, thinking about the life of the vine and, and, and how it comes, recognizing our absolute dependency, our absolute dependency upon Jesus. He couldn't make that any clearer here. You have these two strong statements, a strong negative, put it that way, a strong negative. He says, the branch cannot bear fruit apart from abiding in the vine. And in the same way, we can do nothing apart from abiding in him. Now, not literally nothing. I mean, you got out of bed, you got dressed, right? You're here. But that's not the sense in which he means you can do nothing in the sense of anything of lasting, abiding, eternal, deep significance. In fact, what we're going to see here in just a few minutes is you can't even love apart from him. We'll get to that in a few minutes. So our absolute dependency upon him, a strong a negative, but there's also a strong positive. I don't know if you noticed that, but he also says, whoever, not the one with the degree, not the one who's you know 20 years old, could be the one that's five years old, not the one with a certain income, not the one with a certain job, with a certain title, not the, the person with this skin color or that skin color or that socioeconomic background, whoever, whoever abides in me will bear fruit, will bear this fruit. 
In fact, this, the, the assurance goes on beyond that when you really start delving into this and you start realizing what he's saying is he's speaking of a changed life, the change that goes down into the depth of the basement of your desires that is so profound, you start to pray Jesus' desires for you. That's the wonder of what he's speaking of here, the depth of that transformation in life that begins in, in us because of his work in uh, so this absolute dependency that then takes us to this need for abiding. Ten times that word abide shows up in this text. I don't know how, how many, if you, I don't know if you counted, but if you do, you're gonna find it ten times in the text that we have read here. Obviously, that's a theme when you see something like that. So the, the need for abiding. What in the world does that word mean? Well, th- think again, right? Like literally, Branch, vine, abide for the sake of fruit. It means remain. It means stay. It means draw your life from. It means dwell. It's, it's, it's a life of reliance. Staying in the place of reliance. Even though there could be a whole lot of other places and persons that you could abide in and try to be drawing life from, Jesus says, no, no. I am the true vine. Abide in me. Abide in me. And this abiding, so that's the meaning, this abiding is the only means of fruitfulness. It's the only means by which we can. Again, ju- you know, go with the agrarian metaphor as what Jesus is putting here before us. Just as this is true with the branch and the vine, so he's, Jesus is saying, so it is true you my daughter, my son. This is true for you. You must abide in me. This is the secret, if you will, towards fruitfulness. Drawing our life from him. Every day, in everything, through the day. In everything, all the time. Now, why is this important? Because this is not our default. This is not our default switch. This is not our default mode. This is not, you know, thinking in terms like, you know, like your car, you know, a car that's out of alignment, you know, and it drifts, you know, you drove, I don't do this, but if you were to go down there and say 24 today and let your hands off the steering wheel, you would discover what, how your wheels are out of alignment. And maybe they're in alignment, but if they're not, you're gonna drift. Well, we're, we drift, we're out of alignment. We're out of alignment. Our default setting is to draw life from ourselves to draw life from ourselves. We are so self-dependent, so self-reliant. We're so very American in that sense. How so? How, how, break this down. What does this look like? Let me, let me try and explain what this looks like, how, how it manifests itself in, in so many different ways, in, in every way, actually. We downplay the difficulty or the need that's in front of us. Now, whatever that is, you know, a hard conversation you need to have with somebody or persevering in some difficulty or whatever form that may be, or accepting a hard thing. Whatever whatever the hard thing is, we downplay it. Oh, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And then we overplay our ability to meet the challenge. So we downplay the need and we overplay our ability to handle it. And where does that take you? Disaster. Because of one or both of those default settings, the ways of seeing the matter. 
disaster, stress, anxiety, you're freaking out, you're upset, now you're stressing out the people around you because you downplayed the thing in front of you and you upplayed you and your ability to, to handle it. And what Jesus is showing us here is a whole new way, the only way. And I'm stealing this phrase from this phrasing here a little bit from B.B. Warfield in the essay he wrote late 19th century. Princeton Seminary professor. Rather, we need to face the immensity of the task before us. Just look it in the eye. Just see it for how impossible it is. Face it. Face the immensity of the task before us and embrace the infinitude of the resources at your disposal that so far chump, trump, overwhelm, and drown out the immensity of the task. Because, it, yeah, it's immense, I get it. But we're talking about infinitude of resources in Jesus. So, I'm gonna give you another I. Face the immensity of the task before you. Reckon with the impossibility of doing anything about it in your own strength and embrace and draw upon the infinity, the infinitude of Jesus's resources at your disposal. That's abiding. That's abiding in everything. In, I don't know how to set up the new Wi-Fi network in my house and asking for wisdom there. To, I don't know how to advise a friend in a troubling circumstance, because you don't. Or I don't have the patience, I don't have the love, I don't have the gentleness, I don't have the, the faithfulness. Remember the fruit of the Spirit we read from Galatians 5? I don't have it. He does. He does. Abide, abide, abide. The fruitful life is a connected life. It takes us to the last point. Not only the work of the vine dresser and the life of the, the vine, but the fruit of the branch. So what does he have in mind? How does this life come if I can put it this way, it sounds almost like what I just said before in the first point, but it's a little different. What is he after? Like, what is he really after here? Verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things, and by the way, that's a reference to everything that's come before in John 15. These things I command you so that you will love one another. What is this text about? What is he after? He's after fruitfulness, yes. He's after, you could say, the place, we'll talk, talk, let's come at it from this angle, the place of obedience in the Christian life. It's there. He speaks of this relationship between obedience and friendship. That's there. It's not, but it's not that, that the priority is given to obedience. It's not that uh, you have to earn or merit, you can earn or merit or obligate Jesus to be your friend 
with how well you've performed? That's as crazy as saying that the branch has to bear fruit before it can be grafted into the vine. So the priority is not given to the obedience. The priority is actually given to the friendship. It's the friendship that enables the obedience. It's the friendship with Jesus, and this is what friendship with Jesus does. It transforms you. The more time that goes by in relationship with him, he changes you. Over time, slowly but surely, as you become more and more like this friend who has initiated this relationship with you. So there is the place of obedience, yes, yes. And the priority of love. What command is Jesus especially concerned about in this passage? The command to love. The command to love, to love one another, to love according to his pattern. You know, he said it twice, as I have loved you, as I have loved you. Now, in the immediate context, that's probably referring to something that just happened just a few moments before, the washing of the disciples' feet. So as I have loved you, like go low and love each other, as I have loved you, so love one another. But he also says, as I, I'm paraphrasing, as I will love you. Now, what's that referring to? The cross, where he lays down his life for them, for us. So the pattern of, that's, Jesus is giving us this pattern here. As I have loved you, as I will love you, live according to this pattern. Know the purpose, this is all under, understanding something of this love. Know the, know the purpose of this choosing. Know the purpose of this anointing. I mean, what, what does he say? Again, the last verse. These things I command. So, so verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Now, a lot of Reformed Presbyterians just kind of stop there. And we say, See, this is all about predestination and election. Well, it is referring to that. Let's just be clear on that. But that's not what all this is about. Why were you predestined? Why were you elected? Why were you chosen? Why were you appointed that you would love? See, this hit me like a ton of bricks yesterday morning. Why does he engage in the pruning work in my life and in yours? Why does he call us to abide in him? That we would love each other. That's the driving force of this whole passage. That we would love each other. That the way we think think of one another, that the way we speak to one another, that the way we act to one another would be governed out of love. Love, his love pouring out through us to one another, to one another. So in, in the Schwartz household, we've had a few birthdays in the last, I don't know, two weeks or so um, uh, of the little people in our, in our lives, okay? And that's been great. So with the, the, the birthday celebration, comes gift-giving, right? That's just kind of a thing, especially with little people. Um, they're not hobbits, by the way. Um, and how do you know how to give a gift? Now, whoever you're giving it to, how do you rightly, right, rightly, not most of us men, but how do you rightly 
give a gift. You think in terms, you act in terms, you buy and extend yourself in terms of the desires and need of the person who's receiving, right? Not the desires and needs of the person who's giving. That's what it means to be a successful gift giver, to be thinking about what is it that the one who's going to receive this most desires? What does Jesus most desire from you and me? What does he most desire from you and me? That we would love each other. That we would love each other. That we would bear the fruit of love. Now, I've got to drive on this a little harder, so bear with me here. Why are so many Christians so awful at loving each other? Why? It's not like he didn't say it. Think back to the last couple of years. How have we done? What's the testimony that we've given to the watching world? Have they seen it? What have they seen? Why are we so lousy at loving each other? I'll give you, I'll take a stab at two reasons, just playing with this text a little bit. One is we're not hearing him. We really don't think he means it when he says, this is, your com- this is my command. These are the stakes. We're not hearing him. We can exegete all kinds of other passages with varying success, but here, here we put parentheses and footnotes. We qualify it to death. We're not hearing him. And worse, sometimes we substitute the command. We think what he actually means is, the new command I've given you is to be right. Or to be loud. If you can't be right, at least be angry and loud. We don't, we're not hearing him. We're not hearing the command. And this is the other part. We don't believe the promise. We don't believe the assurance that if you abide in me, this fruit, and what was the fruit? The fruit is that of love for one another. If you abide in me, if you dwell in me, if you find your life in me, you will be a people of love for one another. We don't believe the command and we don't believe the promise. Oh, that we would. Oh, that we would. He calls us to a fruitful life, but that is a life of being connected, and that is a life of love. I'm looking at the time. We need to wrap this up. Again, let me just end with this this question. It's the question we started out with. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to come into the light, come into the vine. It means to come into the the vine. Yes, it means a whole lot of other things, but may we not lose sight of this. Jesus' own words here, here in John 15, on the eve of his crucifixion, he's making it clear that he's calling us, you and I, 
you and I, even you and I, to a fruitful life. But that life is only found connected to him. And what a life he means for us to have, a life of joy, as he says, that my joy would be in you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this memorable imagery that you are putting forward here to us, the work of the vine dresser and the pruning. Oh, my goodness, how vivid. The life of the vine found in dwelling and the connecting and the abiding, the fruit of the branch. And now we come to really hear and see that of love. Oh, would you make this more than just memorable? Would you help us to see and long for what is described? Life in and through the vine, a life of love. Would you make us, Jesus, please make us fruitful in that sense. Would you help us to begin with, in our closest circles, moving out from there, whatever ways, whatever shape, whatever form you would call us to. And even as that scares the spit out of us, may we know the promise that whoever abides in me, in them, through them, will come this fruit. We pray in your name. Amen.